welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week, we'll be discussing Season 47, Episode 9 of SNL with sorta almost five-time host Tom Paul Rudd. I'm famous Catherine Coleman, and this week, John Murray is back. And we're joined by fellow SNL podcaster Jamie Dew of the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. You can connect with Jamie on Twitter at SNLHOF. And if you'd like to connect with us, you can do so at SNLpodcast.com. All right, here we go. Whew, so uh, where to even begin on this one? <laughs> it, uh, it seems as though everything was a go as of Saturday morning, and then maybe some cast or crew members tested positive for COVID, and then... Things just started unraveling from there. I, I was like, every time a news article popped up, I was sending it to John, and I, I felt like I was like watching them <laughs> rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic, like trying to figure out how. And I was like, there's no way this goes on air by 11:30, right? Yeah. Um, but it did. Ultimately, we ended up with a with a clip show with the. Uh, uh, we had Tom Hanks, we had Paul Rudd, we had Tina Fey, Keenan and Shay were were still there. Uh, now, why were they the only two? Who could know? Uh, but. <laughs> We got what we got, uh, plenty and plenty to break down. But, John, first we have a guest to introduce. We do. And uh, because I got history with Jamie Dew, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it from here. Uh, Jamie, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. It's yeah. great to be here. A long time coming. So uh, you're someone that I crossed paths with a few years ago now, um, because as an SNL enthusiast, you were toying around with maybe launching your own SNL podcast. And we, right. yeah, we, we batted that idea around for probably the better part of like two years yeah. <laughs> before you finally had your format sorted out. Um, you were gracious enough to have me up to talk about Tina Fey, which is just always a joy for me. <laughs> I will be able to do a little bit of that tonight as well. Um, and then we collaborated a little bit on a Star Wars, um, I guess, audio play, audio drama. You know, maybe that's why it never took off. We just never had a great title yeah, for it. Yeah, <laughs> if, if you don't understand your project, how's anyone else going to? Right. Um, but it was uh, the, the uh, non-official leaked Duel of the Fates episode nine script that you decided to put to orchestration and you recruited all your, uh, you know, actor performer friends to do voices and um, made a, a lovely little COVID project that I was able to um, piggyback on and, and, uh, you know, participate in and have some fun with you guys. So, um, we've, uh, we've done a lot, but we've De never had deck you. officer number two, I believe. Yeah. You yeah. Were. Un unnamed first order officer. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, leading role. Yeah. There's, there's no small parts. Um, and I, I feel like I, I took that one line of dialogue for all it was worth. That's and right. if, if people want to check that out, that podcast is still up. They can just search for duel of the fates in any podcast app and find it. Um, but, like I was saying, the the one thing that we've never gotten down to is uh, having you on our show and um, letting our audience enjoy some of the the insights and uh, just the wealth of information that you have uh, about the show. And we're going to rectify that tonight. We thought uh, we would uh, bring you in for our big 150th episode blowout. Um, but uh, I think we might be doing a slightly more modest show this evening, much like <laughs> SNL did. Uh, regardless, it's fantastic to have you up. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I, I like nothing more than to talk about Saturday Night Live. And when I can talk about a fresh episode, that's even, that's even better. Mm -hmm. Now we didn't get 
quite the fresh episode that we expected. There were a few day olds in there, you know, mm-hmm. but um, I think uh, we should have a lot of fun tonight. We should, because even if, uh, you know, some of it was clip show territory, uh, it was still a historic evening in many ways. You know, the, the show mm-hmm. having to just sort through the, the mess that this week threw at them uh, and the decisions they made and how we ended up with the final product that we have is just as intriguing as, you know, enjoying dick in a box or Christmas time for the Jews one more time. So, uh, <laughs> you know, there's still, I think plenty for us to, to bite into here. Um, and I'm going to throw it back to Catherine to get into that after we talk a little bit about some of our, our new patrons. Cause, uh, anytime someone steps up and is willing to support the cast, we always want to give them a little shout out on the show, let them know that they are loved and appreciated. And so, uh, yeah, we want to thank Jill Olmstead of Alexandria, Virginia, by way of Buffalo, New York. And Rick M of Des Moines, Iowa. Also Drew Moses of Pittsburgh, PA. Josiah of Atlanta, Georgia. Joe Daniels from Chicago. And Perry Flores from Whittier, California. So uh, a slew of new patrons from across Catherine's great nation. And uh, (laughs) we are happy to have all of them on board. And uh, with that said, Catherine, why don't you uh, kick things off? Let's get into it. All right. For the uh, historic monologue slash cold open, Tom Hanks, Tina Fey, Steve Martin, and Keenan Thompson welcome Paul to the Four and a Half Timers Club. <laughs> and uh, Jamie, kick us off. What did you make of this Bizarro World monologue? Well, I, you know, I think that I thought there would still be some sort of semblance of a show mm-hmm. when I sat down to watch this. And right off the bat, the fact that they're at home base, there's no cold open. It's, um, I- I'm guessing it's, uh, it's, um, Higgins who right. calls Tom Hanks to the stage, summons Tom Hanks to the stage. Mm-hmm. And Tom Hanks comes out with, uh, Tina Fey. And, you know, right away, there's gravitas there with those two performers. You've got a tenured veteran of the show and you've got who he says is the first five timer. <laughs> Although we can, we can quibble about that, I'm sure. Right. Uh, but you know, I, I, I think it did what it needed to do. I think bringing out Keenan to present, you know, explained why Keenan was there. He was there to, to do that monumental task. And, you know, all of a sudden the stage was set, the stage was set for this evening. Uh, they didn't really rely on Paul Rudd to be a host. I thought he might do all the interstitial bits, but the fact that they had this really great crew there with Hanks and, and Faye and, and, and Keenan why not leverage them and use them? Uh, so it really set that stage and set a through line for the show, which I think, you know, is what we're not, we're not used to that with Saturday night live per se, but we're used to that with a variety show. We are sort of used to that idea with a variety show. Yeah, yep. for sure. I think, uh, it was, it was interesting. Cause I think I too, once, once it became like 1115 and I realized, Oh, they're not going to call this off. <laughs> I, <laughs> I expected you know, there were, there had been rumors that, you know, Keenan was still there, you know, what, what's going to happen. And so I started to think, you know, maybe it would just be like the cold open would be maybe like Keenan on stage, like addressing what happened today. And then we'd go into like a monologue or something. It makes sense, obviously, that they didn't have like the opening montage, but it still just felt really weird for that not to be there. Um, but once I got over all that surrealness and like what the craziness of what we were experiencing, I had a great time with it. Like there were, really solid jokes. I love the cameos. Like 
what what a great lineup of cameos you know can never go wrong with tina fey or steve martin tom hanks is our dad uh, yeah like we had tina talking about doing improv at macy's that's classic tina steve martin and martin short doing their thing just like really fun stuff and it made me feel both like i was glad that it was a semblance of normal that you know they, they had jokes ready it was funny like they were all landing but then it also made me bummed because clearly like the the writers were up to the task this week. Like they were, they were having a good week. Like they were writing good stuff. And I'm just kind of sad. We didn't get to see what was supposed to come of that. So right. overall good things, but still mixed feelings on the craziness of it. You know, uh, John, how'd it make you feel? Uh, similar. What I always find interesting with SNL is how they run at a show when the world throws them a curveball And, it becomes necessary to not do the conventional SNL opening because tonally that just doesn't make sense. Or in this case, you know, just logistically, it doesn't make sense. Um, you know, there's a handful of examples over the years. 9-11 is the superlative example of where they really had to walk a line and, and find uh, a somber yet encouraging tone. And, you know, it, it, it was, it was a hard line to walk. And I always look at that and think, man, they, they walked that pretty much perfect. Um, so in this situation coming into it, I, I was really just trying to say, okay, well, obviously they're going to have to address this. The show is not going to be typical. So there, there has to be some conversation about it. How do they strike the right tone and how do they kind of put their best foot forward? Um, that's what I was watching for. So it, it's interesting, the choices that they made, because to me, it said, um, yeah, you know, this week was crazy and it just kind of typifies a, a crazy couple years that we've been having and are going to continue to have. But it didn't say like, we got to be down about this. It's kind of just like, Hey, you know, we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We make the best of any situation. And isn't that kind of, you know, what's great about this institution and just, I don't know, human civilization in general. So to me, there was, there was a, a feeling of optimism. And so I think if they'd come out any more, um, melancholy or whatever, if, if, if they were being needlessly serious or needlessly dramatic, I, I feel like that would have just. Well, it just would have dragged down the material. And what they had to do was say, like, here's what we got. Let's all have as much fun as we can have. And and I feel like they said it quite well. And it's just nice that they had such capable, um, recognizable friends of the show on hand this week because they were planning on going big um, to be able to just kick things off right. And and how fitting, you know, it's I mean, unfortunate that Hanks flew out there for to not really <laughs> do what he planned to. But. You know, he he kind of hosted the first at home episode of COVID, and now he's here doing this. It's uh, yeah, it feels full circle in the worst possible way. Mm. Hopefully, it's hopefully it's positive. Hopefully, those are bookends, <laughs> and we can put right. this we can put this to bed. It's going to go yeah. away over the holidays, right? That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty here's sure I, I had this exact same conversation this time last year, but uh, yeah, <laughs> here's hoping. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've said enough on the monologue. Let's get into one of the one of the handful of new sketches <laughs> that we did get tonight, which is all about what do moms want for Christmas? Grandchildren, of course. <laughs> John, was this a win? Oh, it it, it so was. It, it so was. And uh, for me, like we've we've seen this gear from Kate and eighty before. Um, but to me, what's infinitely amusing is how 80 without it being a, a real facet of the sketch can make herself come off a little brain damaged every, <laughs> every now and again, she'll drop a word. Like she'll say a sentence, but there's, there's just, there's a, there's a, 
a verb missing or something that so the the <laughs> sentence ends up coming off like just mentally i'm just not there uh and she she does that and she doesn't telegraph it but then it just it, it just adds that little bit of uh you know just extra performance that really makes me love these these single-minded characters um and what was uh, it this thought- time it was like we've never done actors yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just it's just not quite English, and uh, and she also kind of she almost kind of pulls her words back in a little bit as she's speaking. She just kind of uh, she just kind of has a way of chewing through her her dialogue that uh, again is just it's just infinitely amusing to me. So I always love Adi in these kind of roles. Um, the subject matter is great, you know. It, I'm sure relatable to to so many people and uh in in a weird way just very very true of of people when they get to a certain age and uh the overwhelming need to have children back in their lives it's just I don't know fun truthful on point for the season total win Fair enough fair enough I like this one a lot you know you you can't really go wrong with Kate and Adi as far as I'm concerned mm-hmm. Uh but one thing that that was interesting to this was that it was that it was a pre-tape mm. You know the these types of sketches usually are not like we usually have Kate and 80 live in studio. There's really no reason why this one wouldn't have been that way. Um, so mm-hmm. it was sort of, sort of interesting. It's like, Oh, like this, this wasn't meant to be live. Like they genuinely did film this as a pre-tape. And I mean, I'm glad they did because I enjoyed the sketch, but it definitely struck me as uh, different than how they usually go about these. Um, but I thought this had, you know, as for what it was, I thought it had good heightening moves as far as, you know, they started off with, we want grandchildren. He's like, okay, what do you get for other people? And then it's like gross. Like we want our kids to have sex. Uh, and then of course they ended up bringing Paul Rudd in. Like I, I thought, I thought all the writing was really good. Um, I would have been interested to see how it benefited from like studio laughter happening in there. Sure. Cause yeah. uh, I definitely liked it more. Th- I, I liked it the first time. I liked it more the second time. Um, so yeah. Uh, interesting stuff here, Jamie, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I think, this would have been interesting to see with another 24 hours. I know it's a pre-tape, but I think it would have been edited. I think each of those movements, you know, you would have lost a couple of the beats. So it would have been tighter and more refined. And I know that's not the spirit of the night. The spirit of the night is sort of loosey goosey. We're just going to go with this. But I think in, if it had been an ordinary evening, this would have been potentially something that missed, uh, you know, like with, with the laughter, other than the fact that, you know, you're right. When we see Kate and 80 at this point, we, we have a certain expectation and they met that expectation. They did. They didn't let us down. It was still, you know, really quality, but I think it could have improved with just, you know, lopping 45 seconds off it somewhere. Yeah. If this had gone through dress uh, and then like live, I think they definitely would have, would have tightened it up a little bit. Yeah. I I do think it, it needed to be a pre-tape though. I, I okay. think that the way that they structure these when they're shooting them is they kind of just turn on the camera and they lob something at the girls and then they will take like a half a dozen runs at it. That's and that right. gives them more to, to edit down. Um, so it's so? not that they could. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like this. Yeah. The, the, I could, I, you know, I can't say that with authority. I wasn't at the shoot, but um it, in the past that that has been the approach. Like they have an outline, they have a script that they're working from, but the advantage of the pre-tape is if they're, if they've got the giggles and they, they're playing off each other, let's just let the camera roll and see where it goes. Mm-hmm. And because they have great editors at SNL, they can 
pull all that back into something cohesive, even though, you know, it's, it's a lot of scattershot stuff from, from the girls. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's my headcanon. That's my working theory on it. But I feel like even though you could write this, this as a sketch to be performed live, the girls would have to be so much more kind of dialed in on it that you'd miss a lot of that brilliance. You know, they, they would have to be following the script in real time in the studio without that freedom to explore. And I think half the fun gets lost if you kind of readapt this for that. So uh, I, I think it was appropriately produced, but I could see a different version of these characters that makes sense in a live setting. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So ho- Home Goods is a win. Let's get going into the first of our classic sketches that we got. A total classic. Uh, everyone loves Stick in a Box, right? Um, uh, some more than others, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I've heard this recently, but I haven't watched it in a long time. So it, it was it was fun to like remember like all of the little visual things we get, how those boxes bounce in just the funniest way. Um, <laughs> I, I was happy with it. Jamie, did it put a smile on your face to see this one? It never, it it never, it never not. It, it, it always delights me. Thank you very much. Uh, it always delights me. This sketch, and um, I think they made an appropriate call out at the beginning, telling us to watch Maya and telling us to watch Kristen because, boy, oh boy, they they are fantastic. You know, like the boys are great, and they are able to stretch this into, you know, a trilogy. Uh, I think it's a trilogy, right? There's ends. mother lovers and there and is a third one. I just, there is a third one. one. Yeah. Yeah. I can't pinpoint. It's on the last episode. I'm pretty sure. Um, Andy Samberg's last episode or no, that's yeah. Lisa Sunday. Sorry. I'm, I'm going all over the place here, but um, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's not a whole lot more you can say about it other than what you said. It's a classic. It, like it truly is a classic. It's, it's without understanding it. It's a genre defining classic. It's, it's one of the most recognizable, uh, digital shorts there is uh whether you know you're a diehard snl fan or you're somebody who just casually watches you, you know dick in a box <laughs> yeah. absolutely we're all, all too familiar with dick in a box um not a whole lot i don't want to dig deep on the um the clip show part of this just because you know there, there's more fun things to talk about but uh i'll you know i'll second everything you guys said dick in a box is uh catchy the the costuming is right on point to lampoon that era of the R&B, um, you know, boy band heartthrobs. Um, so, yeah, there's always a, a lot that you can revisit with this that holds up and is still a lot of fun. The the one thing that always gets me, though, is at the end, uh, they get taken away in a police car. And if legend is to b- be believed that that legitimately happened, that wasn't part of the shooter expected. Uh, you know, they were filming guerrilla style without permits or something or just, you know, being obnoxious and uh yeah they got i think they got rounded up and they just kept that footage because it was such a fun way to cap things off wow that's that i i believe you know i could be totally making that up but i'm pretty sure that's that's something that's uh been documented anyways uh dick in a box always a win always a win i and uh i will say i appreciate in the setup for this one how tina mentioned you know the famous ice skating good nights and right. how Keenan is indeed always mm-hmm. the one who can skate and him like yep. confirming yes, because mighty ducks, like <laughs> that <was> great. <laughs> that, that's really fun. Like we, we know that we've observed that. So just to have mm-hmm. them like acknowledge it. Right. That's always fun. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get into another new one. Then the year 2054, all that remains is washed up. Pete Davidson still making Staten Island jokes. <laughs> John, was this one a win? 
I, I think it was, uh, in a, in a way that gives me hope, uh, for SNL and culture, uh, that occasionally we get something like this. Um, and I, what I don't want to do is talk too much about it because I want to throw to Jamie because I think there's a few historical touchstones with the show connections you could be, could make to, uh, previous pre-tape directors and, uh, some other melancholy material that the show's done over the years. So before I say everything that needs to be said, Jamie, um, what connected with this? Is there anything, uh, SNL lore wise that you feel this is kind of, uh, akin to this is Schiller ask for sure. Okay. There, I you set know, you up appropriately. Good. Yeah, thank you. Good. We, you, got, we got there. You love me right. and you love me something like that. I'm going to hit it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Run with that. Yeah. I think it's Schiller esque. Uh, just the black and white feel, the, the sort of somber, melancholy, uh, you know, tone of the, of the first two thirds anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting that we go to color, you know, when he goes to sit uh, on the bench with the writer and right. they come back to the, they come back to the nightclub. Uh, the, the sketch is still really great, but it, it loses some of that texture and some of that harmony, but I really love it. I, I think, I think this is a, a big win for Pete Davidson. Uh, if you had told me, so he went on a run last January and the, the stretch in January and February, it was like the, the, the human cry of the SNL community was that he, has emerged. He has finally sort of emerged and I was skeptical, but I kept watching and by golly, he had emerged. (laughs) But if you told me that last holiday episode or last Christmas episode, he was going to be featured in a sketch that was five minutes long meandering and about, you know, his sort of personal life and about him being washed up. And like, there's no way I would have believed you. He was a capable of it. B, that they would have invested in that, you know, mind you, they were investing in Chad sketches. Like he was doing great Chad <laughs> stuff. Great Chad call out in this sketch, by the way, when, when the audience, when mm-hmm. Mickey, uh, when Mikey day calls him, you know, like dear Chad, <laughs> that's dynamite. That's dynamite. This was a, this was a home run for me. It yeah. was really, it was really good. Absolutely. All right, Catherine. So like, it's still your show. <laughs> I did a little diversion well- there, but. Go 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 back into your thoughts. You know you all right, you, yeah, you I'll, seeded I'll, your time, but okay, all right. Um, so yes, uh, I agree with all that. Obviously, the the immediate thing that you would think of is some of those, um, yeah, just more more challenging and less comedic, more about a mood and more about a, a theme and a tone uh, tone poems really that that Schiller would do back in the day. Um, don't look back in anger. I think if if you were gonna connect it to anything. They did a sketch where it's Belushi in the future, reminiscing about all the cast members that he's outlived um, in black and white, you know, same kind of idea, uh, you know, him aged up uh, to be an old man. Um, I think that there's, you know, there, there's some inspiration there, you know, a potential connection to the type of pieces that SNL was comfortable uh, producing back in the day that I would like them to be adventurous and try and find those alternative forms of, of sketch that, that aren't just necessarily like joke a minute type of vehicles. Um, so for all those reasons, I, I thought this was absolutely great. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know what else you could say. It's just, it was an unexpected holiday treat. This, this was interesting. I'll be the outlier here. Uh, okay. it wasn't for me. I can respect oh. everything they were doing. Uh, oh, like millennials it, <laughs> <laughs> love you, it, Catherine. Uh, uh-huh. It, uh, 
it, it was shot beautifully. Pete did give an excellent performance, but like, I, I, I don't, maybe it's just, this just isn't my style. It isn't my humor, Sure, but I, um, I definitely would have been intrigued to see how it went over with an audience that would have mm. given an interesting feel to it because as it was, it just sort of was unsettling to me, I think. Um, and maybe if, if this was in a, if we had a normal episode and this was thrown in again, maybe that would have, maybe I would have liked it more then, but just like with the, with the day that we had and with how everything shook out, it just sort of, I don't know, the vibes felt weird to me because you know, we, I was geared up for there to be sort of a melancholy thing, but then it wasn't that. And then like, this was sort of sad. Um, I don't know. I think, I think it's a good premise. Uh, they did it well, but it's just, just not my style. So, yeah. Well, this whole show has been a roller coaster of emotions. So. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can see that because I think part of what either would make this sink or swim for most audience members would be a willingness to accept from the get go that maybe this isn't a comedy forward piece, that maybe they're going mm-hmm. for something else. And I yeah. think you have to, you know, maybe it's just having a history with the show that goes back to where they could produce stuff like this uh, a lot more often that you see it and you, you uh, withhold judgment until you figure out what you're watching. And Mm -hmm. then you're not quite as concerned about whether you're laughing, Uh, whatever emotions are welled up. You kind of feel like, okay, that maybe that's the ride they're trying to take me on. And then you can kind of embrace it more. So I can understand how, you know, it, it could cut either way very easily depending on, what our expectations are and what our headspace is. So yeah, I, I don't think it would be a, a slam dunk for everyone if on a normal night, but as a 10 to one, I think it should have found its way into the show one way or the other. Yeah, I can see that. Maybe I'll watch it again in a few days and really like it. Maybe hopefully. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into another throwback. These elves have been naughty and Santa needs to punish <laughs> them. Uh, Jamie, were you happy to see this one included? Uh, I was happy to see Vanessa Bear and Bobby <laughs> Moynihan. Uh, you know, Ryan Gosling is always is always great in an SNL sketch as well. There were a couple of moments where he looked like he was going to break, <laughs> and I enjoy that. I enjoy his perseverance and his his uh, the way he plays the game. You know, like he he gets fully into it to the point that he he, he might break. As far as the sketch itself, uh, this isn't this isn't on my top ten you know, SNL Christmas sketches. It doesn't, it doesn't make the, when the SNL hall of fame has a, has an exhibit on holiday sketches, it wouldn't make the real for me. Uh, but it was so lovely to reconnect with Vanessa bear and, um, and Bobby Moynihan for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It made me really miss Bobby. I love Bobby Moynihan so much. And he's, he was just so great. Um, I had no recollection of ever having watched this sketch. So it was as if it was new to me. <laughs> Oh, they I, uh, did a they did a bunch of these. They've they've done probably four of them. Yeah, but I don't I do not remember the specific okay. one. Um, I remember that the same episode. I remember like the Santa Baby sketch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know I've seen it. I just it disappeared. But in a way that helped me out because I was just like, okay, yeah, this is fun. Um, <laughs> you know, I was able to be surprised by it again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just silly. Um. I, I I think I like Santa Baby more of the two, but I can see why they why they would pick this one over that for the show. Um, yeah, this, this one definitely has a broader appeal. Um, yeah, this is sort of just like it's evergreen for Christmas. Obviously, you can't play it outside of Christmas, but you can play this every year at Christmas, and it's just silly. There's nothing like super specific 
or topical to it other than it being Christmas. Like there's nothing that ties it to the year it aired, you know? Um, and yeah, it was just fun. All the performances were, were a good time. Bobby is fabulous. So I enjoyed this one a lot. John, did you receive it warmly? I did. And I, I think you kind of touched on probably why they opted for this. You wouldn't follow up that Pete Davidson piece with Santa baby, right? Cause then you're right. like, you're throwing people just too many curves and, and too much, you know, insanity. Um, yeah, this is a lighthearted palate cleanser. There's, there's, mm-hmm. there's no getting up to speed with the game. There's, there's you, it, it's, it's just really fun as these elves reveal their intentions and it gets more and more depraved and you just, you can see this, this craven look on uh you know <laughs> on their faces as they're anticipating uh oh i don't know it's just such a bizarre sick little thing that uh <laughs> i i always get a kick out of it and uh jamie absolutely um bobby and vanessa left the show at the same time and and it, it left a big hole you know for me personally because they were a couple of my favorite performers of that era um so yeah it's always nice to see them side by side just doing their thing um yeah yeah fun i i'm glad that they revisited this All right. Another big time throwback on this one from 1991. It's Carl Sagan's Global Warming Christmas Special. (laughs) Uh, Now, Jamie, as our historian, uh, I'll let you go first. Hopefully, maybe provide some context because I was six months old when this aired. So, okay. I was just going to say so this is, (laughs) this is about the time I was getting ready to jettison SNL for the kids in the hall. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was a couple years where I watched kids in the hall. Rather than SNL, like it was, you know, when Sandler uh, and and um, Spade came on, uh, I, I stopped watching as religiously as I had been. But this is the culmination of the cast that I came to age with for sure. This was, you know, Dana Carvey at his at his height. Uh, Kevin Nealon was wonderful as George Hamilton. I thought I absolutely almost wept. When Hooks and Hartman came out, you know, uh, in, in lockstep for their performance, I thought it was just great just to see the, the gravitas those two have. Like, they really fill the stage. Like, they still, like, looking at that uh, group of people, and that's Tom Hanks they're on stage with, and they don't lose anything to Tom Hanks. Uh, uh, obviously, Tom Hanks isn't who Tom Hanks is now at this point. But he was still a five timer. This, this was on his his fifth up ep- uh, his fifth episode that this sketch appeared, and I think it's I, I think it's really great. I think you get to see a, a, a fun Tom Hanks performance as as Dean Martin. <laughs> I think it's 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 delicious. You know, um, he 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 takes it up notches that uh, we haven't seen him do as recently. I think that. Um, what else is really wonderful is this was the type of show we were seeing on TV at the time. We were seeing these, you know, these uh, shows with disparate groups of people appearing together, you know, in unity for the same cause. And I'm not a Victoria Jackson person, but that, um, but that uh, Sally Struthers is bang on. Like she had the, she had her eyes were misty and, and when she comes back the second time and it's just like, but why, well, why it is, it, it, it's a great thing. I like this sketch a lot. I remember when it aired the first time I remember watching it. I liked it then I like it now, but it's, it's not going to set anybody. It's not going to set anybody ablaze. Uh, 
I have a feeling Hanks, you know, maybe got to pick this one. Uh, I'm calling him Hanks now too. Um, <laughs> Hanks got to pick this one and he said, why, why not show one from my five timer? You know, it was a holiday special. Uh, rank true though. Like, boy, oh boy, this, this was 1991 and here we are. And some of these things they're talking about are like, are very relevant today. And um, I'm, you know, uh, yeah, I, I was, I, I was delighted to see it again. Sure. John, what'd you think? Uh, similar. I, I don't, I don't connect with it quite as much. I, I came into SNL maybe a, actually right around this time, but I don't remember seeing this one live. So it's not, uh, it's not, it's not taking me back that way. Um, I, I consider it an odd choice. Um, heavy social commentary, especially when it's a piece out of time. Like it's, it's going to be a slower paced sketch from a previous era with faces that aren't necessarily recognizable to a lot of the people watching the show. So I think you're right, Jamie. I think this had to be an indulgence. It was either an indulgence for Hanks. You know, they wanted to like put something up featuring him because he was there and, you know, he rallied and he's, he's being a solid guy for the show. So yeah, let's, let's indulge him. Um, or just give him something that, that puts him front and center or it, was just the show saying this is a, a an issue that's near and dear to Tom Hanks's heart. So maybe you know if um you know if he wants to get a little bit of uh, social messaging into the show, we'll indulge it for those reasons. One way or another, it 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 strikes me as an odd choice, but <laughs> you can't help but still appreciate what the cast back then could bring to this kind of material. And uh, yeah, just what standout performers, especially Hartman. And hooks and Myers, like they just, you, you can just see them kind of just jumping off the page with their characters and uh, just doing so much with it. And that's uh, always fun to see. Yeah. Um, definitely an interesting choice. Uh, I had never seen this before. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like, all right, let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, the biggest thing was, oh, wow, nothing at all has changed. And we've thrown mm. a pandemic in on top of it. <laughs> yeah, Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, it made me feel kind of sad. Like it felt like they were rubbing it in a little bit. <laughs> um, but if I, if I take that aside, you know, we had really good impressions. Uh, it's fun to see, you know, Tom, young Tom Hanks do this thing. And the fact that he had already done it five times by then is so wild to me. Uh, obviously I realized the show had been on for a long time, but I was a baby. So thus everything was <laughs> small. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I thought um, this was real long. Uh, <laughs> it really was, right? As most sketches in that era were. Yeah. Right. We're, we're not quite um, used to that pacing. Yeah. It, well, it's nice. This will be my reminder that uh, come January, when I try to say something's too long, I'll be like, well, <laughs> it was shorter than that one. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, interesting choice. Uh, not quite for me. I think, you know, it probably serves you better if you have the nostalgia about it. Uh, which I understand, you know, many people will. So fair enough to put it in, but not my favorite of the night. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's talk about update. Tina Fey and Michael Che joke about everything from abortion pills to camel beauty pageants. Um, John, you're our Tina Fey stand, so I assume this was a pretty big win. Uh, yeah, I love me some Tina Fey. Uh, I, I love what she does. I love that she was willing to rally for the show. Um, you know, she was on board to do this before they realized they were going to be sitting in chairs on home base without a set or a crew or an audience. She thought she was just coming in to pinch hit for Colin because he was one of the, the people who were out earlier in the week, but while it was still hopefully a containable situation. Um, 
so just nice that she stuck around. Uh, she's done some previous pieces and, uh, you know, just talked on talk shows and whatever about how, uh, she really has very little patience for the pandemic. She is, she is a worrier. Um, and there's, a uh, a, a f- maybe famous, maybe not, but uh, again, some SNL lore about, um, her take on anthrax showing up at 30 rock, uh, in the early aughts and, uh, how quickly she just noped out of that episode. So, uh, I think it shows a lot <laughs> of personal growth. <laughs> yes. A lot of personal growth on Tina Fey's part that, uh, she didn't, you know, get flustered at the pandemic this time around. Um, and, uh, what else can I say? I, I just really love seeing her on the show and doing whatever she's going to do. And, uh, I thought that she landed a couple, it, it was a tough situation to be trying to lob weekend update jokes with only a few faces to, to try and, you know, bounce that off of. Um, so a, a challenging situation, but I still enjoyed some of the jokes, even if I had to sort of parse them and put them back together in my head and say, would this have played on a night with a, a you know, with a, a raucous audience and realize that some of the material was genuinely strong, even if it's a little harder to connect with it in, in this situation. So yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I thought this was, this was really solid stuff. Um, it was, it was interesting to see this looser version of update, you know, like, you know, this, this is what it looks like in rehearsals probably. Uh, so it's, it sort of felt like you were an insider getting to watch this. Um, mm-hmm. I think some of the jokes you can feel would have landed better had they had the graphics, like the camel one, probably. Um, I think the maxi pad one probably would have, yes. uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm picturing in my head. How would this play <laughs> with a, with a graphic to support it? Yeah, exactly. Right, and I can only imagine what they would have come up with. Um, but I think the maxi pad one would have killed uh, maybe if there was a uh, more female audience in there. Uh, and then, then there were some really great ones that, that like still worked like lying about being a nurse. That was all great. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I had a great time. And I, I will say that we asked for some, some patron feedback uh, mm. leading into this. And, and one person, uh, BJ Kamen was asking about how during weekend update during the at home, some people wish there were audience reactions and then, they included them the next time and then everybody hated it. So <laughs> I like that they, they played into that a little bit here with like, we're not going to have like fake audience laugh, but we are going to call out the fact that we have uh, Tom Hanks, Paul Rudd and Keenan sitting here and we are trying to make them laugh. And we had right. reaction shots of them. I think yeah. that was really smart. I think that's a good way to play it as far as, you know, we're not going to have laughs. We're not going to put in a laugh track, but we are going to get some reactions in here. And I think that was really fun. I think that was pretty smart. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie, were you into this stripped down version of update? I loved weekend update <laughs> unplugged. I thought it was great. Yes. It was yeah, unplugged you know, in New York. The, the album will be dropping soon. Absolutely. If, <laughs> if this were strictly a Canadian audience and John, you'll, you'll appreciate this, but I would have called it an intimate and interactive. There you go. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Um, because that's what it was. It was, <laughs> it was, it was this intimate and interactive experience that we got with these two great comedians who were telling jokes written by really funny people, uh, not relying on any technology at all. You know, it was completely analog. There were no graphics. There were no nothing. Um, and they were just telling jokes to people. And there's something really uh, profound and, and sort of at the, at the heart of what this show ultimately is. You know, it, it almost mimics that water cooler discussion that we have every Monday talking about the show they got to do it you know in person and i i think that was really lovely i i i think it was just really great and there were some funny jokes the one about uh going to the sun at night because it would be, it would be dark. <laughs> yes. that's, it's a thinker 
That's spectacular. <laughs> yeah. And then to hear Tina, you know, just go, ah, it's a thinker. Um, <laughs> that was so great to get those little, the things that annoy me a little bit during regular weekend updates with, with Jost and Che is sometimes they're a little looser than they, than they need to be. But this showed me that that looseness is what I really appreciate between that pair. And Che looked and sounded as good as he has sounded on weekend update all year on this really off the cuff, loosey goosey weekend update. He sounded dynamite, you know, like when he put his head to his, when he put his hands on his head to laugh at something, it made sense. Like you could see it because it was that one shot, you know, with the two of them on it. Um, Yeah. It, it, it really worked for me. I I thought it was, I thought it was great. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the banter was good. You know, mm-hmm. T- Tina Fey reacting to her own jokes is never going to miss with I think any any of the three of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So big win on uh, update unplugged. Let's get into the the back half of this show where we get another new one. A uh, beautiful Christmas tune about a little boy who just wants to buy his mom the perfect socks and also for his pet bird to come home. Uh. I loved this so much. <laughs> Me too. Um, the, oh my god! Because <laughs> you know it's it's parroting that song "Christmas Shoes," which is terrible and awful. Um, it has so much exposition in it, and so I love that they just play up that angle of like <laughs> we're just gonna sing you this whole story, and then like they pepper in the fact that in this world there are other people in the store, like then <laughs> they would be annoyed. Um, I just, I loved every time another verse started, it was so funny. It, um, cause like it didn't, it didn't change. So every time it came in and there was no change, it got funnier for me. Cause it <laughs> reminded me of when David Harbor hosted a couple seasons ago, they did this sketch where it was like him and AD and Kate and they were just singing the song and it was just the same. It always started with the numbers like 10 long years and, yeah. and they would do it every time. And, Every time you thought it was going to end, they did another verse and that just made it that much funnier. And that's how this felt to me. I was just cracking up um, the way the details kept piling on by the time the mom gets there and he's like, I'm friends with your son. Uh, this was wonderful. Just cr- truly weird stuff. Um, huge, huge win. Jamie, did you enjoy it? Yeah, you said you did. So, yeah. Hi. Yeah. I, I, is this a, is this Kyle Mooney? Like, it, it, did he write it? Do we know? I'm not sure. Um, boy, it sure feels like it's from his mind. Like, you know, like when the, when the bird starts playing, when TJ, TJ rock starts playing, uh, (laughs) with the band, just all the iconography in the background, you know, the in and out burger. And I forget there's several that just sort of appear this bizarre and everybody in the line is suddenly super chill. You know, they're (laughs) dancing with each other because this bird is playing and they love it. There's a human-sized bird in the room. How could you not? Right. Like, and then when Paul Rudd proposes to her, <laughs> it's just so out of left field. It's just like you'd never expect that blow in a million years. And mm-hmm. that's the blow. Mm-hmm. But it's the subtle things that, that also really got me. So the the sketch is based on two singers singing out front of like a storefront or something. And then there's three men behind them that are there for no reason. Mm-hmm. They don't do anything. <laughs> yep. They don't sing back up, but it looks like they're going to sing back up at some point, but they're, they're there for no reason. And Kyle uh, and Paul Rudd both have completely different hair. Um, so even though they're singing the song and they're playing the characters, like 
they're wearing different wigs and Paul Rudd's wig in the, in the story is stellar. Like it is, (laughs) it is, it is so great. (laughs) It's just, this thing is just, just a, just an absolute smorgasbord of bizarre. And I'm going for thirds, you know, like it's, it's, it's great. Yeah. Uh, front to back, loved it. Uh, yeah. John, any any closing thoughts? Any differing opinions? Yeah, I, I well, I think you guys got all all the 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 meat out of it that we really need to. Um, I was feeling wishing boot a little bit there. Um, taking a, like an adult contemporary kind of song and um, just breaking the rules that you've already established. Like you started as more of a, a serious song, and you feel like you're watching a bit of a music video, and then you know they they break that convention by having people in the scene that aren't part of your little music video that are just annoyed by it. And then they break it again when the bird shows up and then, you know, the mom does a 180 and accepts his, his uh, proposal after she was scared that he was a sex offender. So like, you've just, you, I, I think this is a Kyle Mooney thing because I think that what he does a lot of times is find something surreal and bizarre. And then he just starts breaking the rules within that, you know, to keep throwing you curves. And uh, that's what I was feeling here. And I just, I thought it was a, a wild ride and I had a lot of fun with it. All right. So big win on the Christmas socks. Let's get into a throwback. The classic Steve Martin's Christmas wishes. Jamie, how do you feel about it? Well, this is my era again. I don't know if you've got the year in front of you, but I'm guessing this is like 89 or 90, something, something around there. So it was right in my wheelhouse and I loved it at the time. Um, and it, it's even better now. As an adult, it's much better. But I related to Paul Rudd completely talking about watching Saturday Night Live and then, you know, memorizing sketches to perform for your friends. Because we always did, my friend Dean and I always did the Sweeney Sisters. Whenever there was a new Sweeney <laughs> Sister sketch on, we would do, we would memorize it and perform it for all of our friends. Like, so to the point that I will still, every time I see my friend Dean, I'll say, Skip, get to the piano. You know, uh, so it's, it's, it's this great nostalgia that I'm feeding. So I don't know if it holds up for you guys because it is nostalgia that I'm feeding, but I do think it's, I do think I'd be, I'd be troubled if it didn't hold up for you because I think it's just such a great example of just great writing. Like I, I think it's a really well done little. Yeah. I I think no nostalgia required. This is just classic timeless comedy delivered flawlessly from Steve Martin. Like there is, there's nothing not to like about this. It, it, it has twists and surprises you. They burn like pigs in hell. It still gets, it gets me every time I forget it's there and then it cracks me up. Um, and there's, there's really not much more to say about it. I mean, it's just, it's just classic. There's, there's, I would have a hard time thinking anybody didn't like this in some way. Uh, so, John, did you hate it? <laughs> no, I'm just so glad you didn't say, well, I'd never actually seen this before. If you'd said that, <laughs> we'd, we'd be reevaluating your contract. Um, no, this is, uh, this is, this is great stuff. You, you guys said it all. I don't, I really don't want to go long on this, these things where everybody knows it inside and out, but I love Steve Martin. I love what he does. Uh, he, he can, he can sell a line sincerely and wink at the same time. And it's so weird to be able to do that. Uh, you know, like, like you believe that he believes it, but there's a part of him that's still telling you that we're, we're having fun with this material. It's just, it's just part of the brilliance of his delivery. Um, yeah. And so it, it was great classic. It's in every clip show for a reason. <laughs> Very good. Let's keep going to where Paul McCartney plays the triangle in his big Christmas pageant audition. 
And so usually, if for anyone who has seen the full one, this leads into Paul McCartney playing. Right. Uh, what is that song even called? Wonderful, Wonderful Christmas, Christmas time. time. Yeah. Wonderful Christmas. I mean, that's time, the yeah. only line in it. So what else? Yeah. Would it be called? <laughs> um. So interesting that they that they cut that off. You know, Jamie, do you have any uh, any thoughts on how this played without the inclusion of the the ending there? Licensing. Yes, ah, exactly. The monster attacks us. You know, <laughs> but it's funny that Paul McCartney, friend of the show, wouldn't you know offer Lauren some sort of a discount or whatever. Paul must not own the rights of this. Yeah, he doesn't. Know, he wouldn't own the rights to that. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's fun. It's anytime you get a chance to see Martin Short on <laughs> on on your screen, um, just zipping around doing Martin Short things, and he was he was he was going to the well. He was doing the stuff that, you know, the, there were some Ed Grimley moves there in his dancing, uh, the spasticness of him. Like, he is just so great at doing these, these things. And, yeah, I love it. I don't want I don't, I don't to go too long on this either, but uh, it, it's, it's fantastic. But it would have been better. It would have been better to see the complete sketch. Like, it does feel a little strange that SNL is doing this one-off show it's historic it's whatever and they pull the scissors out and and cut that that seems a little strange to me yeah yeah this is this is this is fun you know when when Keenan set it up that that's really the accuracy of this like so much of the show is great because you get these really famous people that you maybe have on a pedestal that you've seen do like really intense dramas and then you just have them do the stupidest thing you can imagine and that is so much of the fun of snl having celebrity hosts uh so i think i think this is the perfect example of that you know paul mccartney being told he's not allowed to sing and he must just play the triangle <laughs> um that's a great place to start you know yeah. i'll i'll take it uh definitely felt a little stilted with no ending that right. was that that was a weird vibe but you know we're not going to complain about it it was it, it was fun enough. Uh, John, any, any fond memories on this one? Well, I, I think, I think that's right. I, I think it, it, um, it needs the ending. I think without that payoff, the, the whole idea that uh, Martin short is oppressing Paul McCartney and, you know, like boxing him in when Paul McCartney is the, you know, musical dynamo that he is. Um, so you, you kind of need that, you know, let's, let's now break it down and, and unshackle Paul McCartney. Um, so it, it seemed a little odd, but I won't complain watching Martin Short do Martin Short. It, it's, right. it's funny to see, you know, Steve Martin in sort of one of his primaries with the show. I guess there's never been an era where he wasn't in his prime with the show, but you know, like we, that, that could have been considered peak Steve Martin. And we, you know, we, we get a reminder here, but also from Steve Martin and, um, and Martin Short, uh, in that little pre-tape they did for the monologue that they're just, they're still brilliant. And Martin Short will still take a pratfall and do, you know, uh, bizarre physical comedy in his signature style. Um, I don't know. It's just a nice reminder that they've always been great and they continue to be great. For sure. Fair enough. Let's get on with it then. Another one, uh, a little bit more recent, a polar bear attack at the North Pole, as reported by a black elf in sweatpants. <laughs> Uh, now, John, you were at this Eddie Murphy episode, yes, correct? Yes, I was. Right. This, this sketch has. The tale. Oh, oh, I don't have a tail so much, <laughs> but um, I'm pretty sure that this version that we're seeing may have been spliced in with the dress rehearsal version. 
because um, when I saw the dress rehearsal version, it was tighter than what ended up going out on the air. And I remember that when we reviewed it the first time that there was some more fumbling and just, you know, they, they did a couple last minute cuts that, that just didn't serve the sketch and just threw off the, the pacing a little bit. Um, so this version of it, it could just be that I've had some distance from it. I don't remember exactly what I saw back then, but this one felt just cleaned up a little more polished, a little tighter. So this is the best we will ever get uh, of this sketch. And um, I think it's a good sketch, but I know I'm not objective. I was there. That was uh, a crazy night, you know, a historic night. And uh, the audience was on fire and it really didn't matter what they did. Uh, everyone was just absolutely, you know, with the show that night. Um, so I don't know. You guys can do the critiquing. I can just say that this was uh, a standout for me on a show that was a standout for me. Right. Yeah, no, I, I like this one a lot. It's it, it was nice to see kind of a, a slightly more recent throwback uh, in in the show. Um, the it don't matter what my name is uh, pays off every single time <laughs> he does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I have like a gif of that saved in my phone that I, I use often. Um, I, I like this because I liked it when it aired. I still like it now. I, if I were to just like list like my top five SNL Christmas sketches, I don't know that this would necessarily make the cut. Um, but but it works right it's mm-hmm. it's it's solid it's funny it's got wide appeal it's what they need in this club show so so i get it i was i was happy to see it i wasn't i wasn't upset about it you know i wasn't like oh this one you know it was good it was solid uh jamie did you think it was a welcome inclusion i think it was because of its historical importance eddie murphy coming back to the show was huge it was absolutely enormous and of all the sketches that appear that night you guys can correct me if i'm wrong but this was the only one that I can recall that they were trying to leverage Eddie being Eddie in that they were creating a new catchphrase almost, you know, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. what my name is mm-hmm. like, um, like they were letting Eddie do something that he would have done in 1982 or 83. And that, that made it even more historic to me. Do I think that the fundamentals of the sketch are, you know, like, amazing no i I mean there's breaking in the sketch um uh um oh my goodness i can't uh cecily strong breaks when you know when he says that she's you know the lovely uh, the the hottest elf or or whatever however he says it the sexy ass Um, elf the sexy ass (laughs) elf yeah she she sort of breaks during that um and it doesn't really have a a great ending it's it's a fine it's fine but it's not it's not great uh but for the historic nature of it, I think it it has to appear on there. Like Eddie Murphy coming back in 2019. Like we're going to look back in 20 years and go, we missed out on Eddie Murphy doing stand-up again. We missed out on an arena tour of Eddie Murphy mm, doing right. stand-up because he was gearing up. He appeared on Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee. He was on SNL. And he was showing up in LA at like clubs doing stand-up again. And I think that, uh, you know, when all is said and done, we're not going to get that tour that we might have got, um, which is unfortunate because, you know, although they don't, uh, although the material doesn't, didn't age very well, Delirious and Raw are two of my favorite, you know, comedy stand-up performances, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, so it would have been cool to see him tackle, tackle things in a, in a new paradigm. Yeah. And, and you're right. because. I'm thinking, I feel like there was maybe one other Christmassy sketch when he hosted John, you probably remember. Yeah, they did. Um, they did, um, demon cake. Yeah. And then they, um, Mm -hmm. they had him 
doing uh, Mr. Robinson and it's, it was, was Christmas time because he was stealing yeah. Amazon packages. Uh, but you're right, Jamie, that this was one of the rare moments where they cut him loose to just take a performance and run with it that you hadn't seen before. So he just had to put his genius into it. Whereas Buckwheat, we know what we're getting, you know, that's Gumby. Right. We know what we're getting. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a high watermark for them just saying, okay, Eddie, what can you do with this? And he, he did what he did. <laughs> he did what he does. Yeah. Fair enough. Eddie, Eddie will always give us a classic. So mm-hmm. let's talk about another one. And this one is the truest sketch that we will see tonight <laughs> about a fully grown man being the world's biggest One Direction fan. Jamie, did you like seeing this one again? You know what? I don't think I saw it the first time. So it was just delightful to see Paul Rudd being Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd with those children, behaving with those children. I can just imagine the in-between takes of him just being so cool and so chill <laughs> and, you know, just sort of riling them up because there were there were a couple rolled eyes delivered <laughs> from the children that were like spectacular. Like they were so well done. So yeah, I, I enjoyed this a lot. It was, it was strange to see Harry Styles uh, twice in this episode. Um, but uh, yeah, I had fun with it. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah. Th- this one's great. Paul, Paul Rudd is, is just such a charming guy. You know, he could really do anything and sell it. Yeah. Um, and seeing him with these kids is, is so much fun. Like uh, watching the kids trying not to break with every line they give is a good time. Uh, the payoff of One Direction actually being there is, of course, wonderful. Um, an interesting choice to include in this because it's definitely not Christmassy. But I mean, obviously, if we had the show that they had planned, I doubt every sketch would have been Christmassy either. Um, I'm sure that this one, much like the Tom Hanks uh, global warming, was maybe like, Paul, what's your what's your pick? What's your favorite thing you've done on the show? We're going to give you a sketch. And this was probably it. Um, so, yeah, I, I was happy. I was happy it was here. Uh, it did. It felt a hair out of place just solely because we were leaning into Christmas, but happy to see it. John, were you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, more than anything, I think it's just a showcase of Paul Rudd being a, a chill, cool dude, um, but <laughs> awkward in that delightful way. You know, he he um, he, he seems effortless at being able to just kind of get down and be goofy in these kind of roles. He, he doesn't seem to be the kind of guy that takes himself too seriously. Actually, we have it on good authority that he is a, a chill, cool dude. Um, you know, yeah. uh, he's a Kansas City native. Um, Heidi Gardner speaks quite fondly of him. Um, yeah. So. Uh, it, it just, it's just a vehicle to make you think Paul Rudd's awesome. And it makes you understand why this is now sort of almost his fifth time hosting because he can, he can come and just participate. And like you said, Jamie, um, get the best out of the kids and make things deliciously awkward and just sell a, a look the wrong way. Uh, you know, when he says, you say one, I say, yeah, yeah. I say wonder, you say, you say, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that line, um, you, you see him pulling back from it as it's dawning on him. And that's just, you know, it's, it's, it's just exactly the kind of little bit of performance you need to, to make that, uh, delicious. And, uh, yeah, it's fun. I can't, uh, can't fault him for finding a good Paul Rudd vehicle. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's keep going. A Christmas album from a wide variety of stars. Now that's what I call Christmas. <laughs> John, what'd you think of this one? Um, it's that, um, you know, parade of impressions. It's, it's something we see a lot on SNL. I think this was a particularly good one though. Uh, and it is one that has resurfaced a few times because when Jimmy Fallon 
was their go-to for the Christmas shows there for a few years. Um, it, they got a lot of his best impressions. And when you know that half the sketch is written from his back catalog, uh, it just helps everyone else bring something to the table and, and make these feel a little bit more inspired than sometimes they are. Um, so this was good. It, it, it was fun enough. This is not something that I go back to, but I appreciate that as far as impression vehicles go, this was a solid. <laughs> yeah, I, this was this was really welcome for me because I, I don't, the impression wheel sketches are not ones that I usually like. I'll go on YouTube and I'll watch over and over again. Mm. But every time I see them, I, I find them delightful. Like they're they're always always fun for me and i my memory isn't the best but i i don't believe we've had one this season so you know it didn't feel like you know we've had a bunch and now they're well, we got to watch this clip it, it, it felt it felt fresh in the sense that we haven't seen one in a minute so so i enjoyed it it's and it's interesting to see like kate and cecily pop up and it feels like oh yeah this this one isn't too old but it actually is like eight years old mm-hmm. um this was i think probably their first maybe second season yeah uh, i think this was so, around 39 yeah yeah, so th- this was great. I I had a good time. This was actually probably maybe one of the highlights because it was just it was just quick. You know these these keep moving. There's no pacing issues in these, so I had a good time with it. Jamie, did you have fun with it on your rewatch? Oh, I feel so bad now because no, this would be this <laughs> no, would be we need, we need counterpoint. This would okay. be a cut. This would be a cut for time for me. Uh, okay. I was now maybe I was unfairly set up because we were set up for this sketch by Tina Fey declaring it was one of her favorite Christmas sketches there was. Mm. She's like, it goes back to 1939, goes back to season 39. And my friend, Jimmy, Kim, uh, Jimmy Fallon <laughs> was in it. Jesus. I can't talk at all. Uh, so right off the bat, I'm thinking, okay, so it's a Jimmy Fallon joint. It's, it's, uh, it's season 39. You know, there's still some cast members there that I, really appreciate. But then I remember season 39 was really awkward because Kate and Cecily looked completely out of place. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I feel like they looked like when you think of, when you think of what Kate pulls off now, like her Shakira was terrible. Like it was, it was, <laughs> it was terrible and it pulled me out right away. Uh, I thought Fallon was fine, but we didn't get his, like we got, we didn't get his best musical impersonations. Uh, yeah, yeah. This was not something that really worked for me. Uh, I didn't like it. That's fair enough. I, I will say, like, yeah, like Kate Shakira is not on her her best of real. I think her Lord is actually very good. I also like the sketch starts with Fallon doing uh, Michael Bublé, right? Which right. I also didn't think was didn't the really most work. standout yeah. impression no. here. Um, when he has to, when he yeah. has to articulate, he had to articulate what the joke was. <laughs> right. Like, I'm going to over pronunciate <laughs> words instead of just over pronunciating words <laughs> like <Right. laughs> yeah probably uh, not working <laughs> yeah like if i had to evaluate this on the night i would probably be like you know it was fun to have an impression wheel but here's here's a few things i would have liked to see better but as right. it was in this clip show i was like okay yeah i'll go along with this this is fun <laughs> you know <laughs> you, you gotta take it for what it is um, but I, I i respect that so hit and miss on that one let's get into our 10 to 1 you know what time it is. It's Christmas time for the Jews. <laughs> um, Jamie, I feel like you probably have some really interesting facts and backstories and um, memories and historical analysis of this. So, Well, I definitely, I, I definitely remember it airing because this is now when I picked up Saturday Night Live again. Uh, and oftentimes the reason I enjoyed the show as much as I did during that era were the Robert Smigel uh, 
cartoon funhouses. Like they were, they were the heir apparent. Like they took the baton from Deep Thoughts and ran with it, and ex- definitely expanded on that. You know that that premise and that idea, and they just did different things every week. And I think they deliver on this one. This one tonally and um, tonally and aesthetically, like really lands. They really hit the mark they were trying to hit with those animated snowflakes, with the the, the style of animation they used, and and oftentimes you find yourself needing to watch the sketch two or three times because you miss the lyrics. You're not even paying attention to the lyrics because you're watching the animation and it's uh you know there's a lot going on in the sketch. It, it works really well. I I I have fond memories of this and and I enjoyed it again last night for sure. Yeah, I mean this is a classic, right? I have I have like weird mixed feelings on it that are all 100% Catherine problems. Um, <laughs> and that I think it's 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 great writing. The song is excellent, but claymation just really freaks me out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's absolutely nothing wrong with the sketch, but I hate watching it. Um, but I acknowledge that that's on me. That's not an SNL thing. Um, I think uh, it's an obvious choice to include here. What really won though is, I, you, you know, I love a heartwarming moment. So Tina's intro was just so lovely. You know, mm. the wardrobe department making a little Santa suit for her baby and then looking around thinking this is a great night. I, I Those little kind of behind the scenes glimpses are just really what I live for. So that was that was really nice. And it made me OK with enduring the claymation and having nightmares. Um, <laughs> John, were you are you a fan of this one? I am, and and I think it absolutely had to be claymation. I think that's that's the most, the most charming element. <laughs> yeah, well, I I guess if claymation ain't your thing, it ain't your thing. But um, they're they're obviously um trying to harken back to like the Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer nineteen right. sixties uh, stop motion children's mm-hmm. fair, um, and I just I I think the the laser focus on not just doing it as claymation, but making sure that that everything had the same simplistic almost like geometric look, you know, like their heads are just like perfect circles and like they're, you know, mm-hmm. the, everything's uh, it, it just very true to that genre. Um, and uh, so just the thought that, especially at this time, this is 2005, but they'd been doing full animated productions for, for TV Funhouse for eight, seven, eight years at this point. Um, so it's uh, you know, it's, it's a feat that, that they're comfortable with at this point, but I still marvel at it. The idea that you can just, storyboard this thing out find a shop that can turn that around give them a, a dope uh like phil specter wallace sound comedy song to to pair with it and somehow or another they they find this final product i i just think it's a testament to uh you know what smigel was doing in that era and and the the guys that worked with them um this is just it's something that wouldn't have existed without SNL. You know, this, there was no maybe <laughs> like college humor or, you know, there was just no other place right. where you would be able to produce something like this and get it out there and, and turn it into a classic. And uh, I just think that that is maybe the real story of it is these little gems would not exist elsewhere in that time period. Um, if, if there wasn't something like SNL to be able to champion them and uh, glad they did. Cause it's smart. It's clever. Um, it, it walks that line where, uh, the joke can be just slightly uncomfortable with our, our social mores, but not so much that we can't get in on it and can't still have fun with it. Um, 
So I just, I, I love everything about it. Every time they, they play this on a clip show, I'm, I'm definitely here for it. Yeah, it's a classic for sure. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the rundown. So let's get into our overall ratings here. Up first, we got to talk about moment of the night. Jamie, what's it going to be? I thought the moment of the night for me was seeing Steve Martin and Martin Short in that pre-tape that they did for the opening monologue. I think that uh, that was just a lot of fun and it really carried, you know, through this premise that Martin Short, you know, is just never not there. And yet he's always trying to thwart Steve Martin a little bit, Um, (laughs) you know, like so that goes outside of SNL and inside of SNL. So that's really fun. Uh, yeah, that would be my moment of the night for sure. Yeah. So for my moment, I'll go uh, a little bit more meta with it. Uh, just in, in that, that moment, we opened the show. We've got like two members of the band there mm. and Higgins says, Tom Hanks. And I immediately go, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, did they send Paul Rudd home too? You know, what's, what's going to come of this? And just, uh, that, that was our glimpse of a day of, of lead up of what is this episode going to end up being? And that was the moment that we saw what it was. Um, so I, I think I think that was an important moment, and it, you know it set the stage for what we got. So there it is, John. What's yours? In the the Pete Davidson, I don't know what you would call it, Christmas Carol, uh, whatever, whatever that was that that melancholy piece. Um, mm-hmm. The the moment where he's got the full weekend update desk, he's doing his shtick with animatronic jost and he starts getting heckled the audience just they want him to play the hits you know and he doesn't want to do it he's he's done chad a million times and he just he's sick of it he wants to retire the character and they won't let it go and he has to acquiesce because this is the best gig he's got and it just said so much about the the lows of post 15 minutes of fame like you know when when people kind of go to las vegas to slowly wither and die um it it just it it painted that picture of a washed up has been lounge performer so well and it just kind of touched on things that i didn't necessarily realize were cliches in in movies that play up that theme of when you're over the hill and just the little digs that just kind of eat away at your your self-esteem um it just it said a lot and i don't know even if there's some meta there about how pete feels about some of you know, the material that he's been sort of uh, just uh, almost typecast in that, that maybe he's ready to retire. Um, I don't know. It just, it was such a, such an intriguing and uh, f- fun moment to digest. So that'll take it for me. Fair enough. Let's talk about our best sketch. Uh, and I think everything's on the table. You know, it doesn't have to be a new one. It can, it can be a repeat. So Jamie, what's your best sketch? I think, the best sketch of the night. I'm going to, I am going to put up a little fence around the new material and because otherwise it's just not fair. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so the fence around the new material, I think Pete in 19, uh, 2054 was stellar. I think that's something that, you know, during the hundredth season of SNL, when, when, <laughs> when Pete passes away, that'll be the sketch they play, you know, to, 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 to show off his bona fides and uh, yeah, I think it was really good. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed that. I'll, I'll definitely revisit that. Fair enough. I, I got to give it another play. That, that's what I'm learning here. Um, I think, I think, yeah, like I, I, I will allow you to give it to an older one, but <laughs> I too, uh, you know, I want to give it to a new thing. You know, I, I agree with you there. It's like that, that 
it does feel unfair, but I'm going to, I'm going to go Christmas socks all the way. I loved it. It surprised <laughs> me. I was cracking up. Um, it just had everything I wanted in this oh, show. Yeah. So maybe it's a tie for big me. win. <laughs> John, uh, what are you going to give it to? I'm torn because I want to give it to, um, 2054, uh, Pete Davidson thing, because I really like when the show takes a swing like that. And, uh, you know, someone had to be able to pitch that and sell it from the script for people to understand that there was going to be brilliance when they actually built the visuals to support the the vision. And, uh, I just, I think those things just don't cut through as much as they need to. And I think sometimes that just is because the, the writing staff is in a particular groove with what they're comfortable with. And so they, they aren't looking to explore other things. Um, so if this is just a, a result of just a, uh, a writing room that, uh, is supporting these kind of endeavors. And there's a few players in the writing room that, uh, are championing these and, and have a voice for the, this kind of more, uh, outside the box stuff. Uh, I just want to applaud it. So I want to give it to that, but I did laugh more at, at the socks. <laughs> like if I'm going to be perfectly honest, those bizarre sort of like surreal, like just trying to understand the world as you get pulled through it kind of sketches, uh, always work for me. And I, and I love, well, I don't love, but, uh, I think it's interesting that it takes a night like last night to get a Kyle Mooney thing over. So it's just, it's, that's also something that we just don't get enough of on the show. Cause a lot of times that sensibility isn't broad enough to make the, the rundown. Um, so somewhere between those two, I was having a lot of fun. Okay. But you have to pick one. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go with 2054. Cause like I said, okay. I feel like that's the, the bigger achievement of the night. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So I, I, anyway, I guess across the board, those are definitely the two standouts. Uh, sorry, home goods. <laughs> sorry, also Dick, fun. Also fun. sorry, Dick in a box. Yeah, you, you, just lose. Lose. <laughs> you just didn't age well. Sorry. Um, all right. Well, up next, we got to talk about the MVP. Jamie, who is it? Oh, boy. This is really tough to nail down who the MVP hey. is in a show that is a clip show. Mm-hmm. But I think based on what I made my pick for moment of the night, I think it's going to become pretty obvious that my MVP for this show is Martin Short. I, I think uh, I love his performance in that pageant sketch. I think it's great. You know, we missed the blow with the with the Paul McCartney thing, but it doesn't take away from his performance at all. His performance was sublime. And the fact that he did a pratfall in the pre-tape and even the little <laughs> subtle things when he hands when he hands Steve Martin the drink, he puts his finger in the drink, you know, mm-hmm. like that's just him sort of being in the character of this waiter who is pissy with Paul with, with, with Steve Martin for, you know, being Steve Martin. And he, you know, puts his finger in the drink. That's, that's like really <laughs> subtle stuff that just works really well. Mm-hmm. And he is a master of that. He, he is somebody who is just, he's a craftsman. He's just a, an absolute craftsman. And uh, I think uh, he's, he's great. So he is my MVP for the night. Fair enough. I think that's a very solid choice. I um uh, I'm gonna take the wind out of John's sails here and give it to Tina Fey, um, oh, because <laughs> I think she was game to come in when it was just gonna be taking over for Joe's, um, and and we both applaud that and like you know we love to see Tina Fey so that's exciting you know it's like oh uh, you know I'm I'm sad that that Joe's is maybe sick but 
I'll take Tina Fey. Um, so like, I think it's great. She was game to do that. And then when everything fell apart, she was still game to like come in and introduce sketches and, and tell mm-hmm. us stories and just, and just be Tina Fey. Um, and there were, there were so many moments where you could see that of the people there, like Tina Fey was the improviser, uh, especially in the good nights. You could see her, like yeah. she was hamming it up for everybody. And like, you know, Chase just kind of, and like he's kind of laughing but tina's like waltzing um <laughs> and i think you know she had that nice heartwarming story about her daughter um she, she did update uh it was a it was a tina show for me you know i would be tempted to say it was tina felt more like the host than paul so um john who's your mvp well uh always happy to to hear tina fey get an attaboy i'm going with pete davidson uh Cause I buy into the narrative, you know, like Jamie, you were talking about how sort of around this time last year, people were like, man, he's really having a solid run and they're throwing a lot of challenging stuff at him. And has he been taking some lessons at, you know, UCB or something like there, there was a sense that, that Pete finally cracked SNL, like finally, you know, found his groove. And, uh, you know, it's been a crazy few years to really be able to put our finger on exactly, you know, uh, where he's at uh, in his performance abilities and, and uh, you know, how history is going to remember him um, just because the show has been, you know, it's run the gamut from the at-home editions to what we watched there yesterday. Um, but I feel like that narrative is true. He came on the show because he was kind of the, um, kind of the, the flavor of the week in the, the stand-up commun- community in New York. Like he was very young, but he was distinguishing himself, but nobody knew, you know, whether he could thrive at SNL, but they knew that they needed like a resident young person. They knew that he could carry weekend update parts. Like they knew that he could slot into that sort of coveted stand up turned SNL performer spot that, uh, you know, a few of the greats have occupied over the years. And, um, for a long time, I wasn't sold on whether he would ever really crack SNL. Um, and then on top of that, you had all of the emotional highs and lows of just, you know, his, his personal life and, and some of the struggles that he has. So, uh, I just can't help but be rooting for him at this point to watch him, you know, carry, carry that sketch and find all of the, you know, emotional depth you need to find to, to make it work tonally the way that it worked. And, uh, yeah, just, just to see that the show has confidence in that. And they know that there's a performer in Pete Davidson that they can explore that kind of challenging material with and create something that really works. He's a part of that. You can't downplay Dan Buell and Steven Castillo. <laughs> you know, there's, you, you got to appreciate everyone that was, uh, bringing something creative to that, but Pete Davidson definitely carried it. And I think that's worth a nod. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, also interesting. Remember at the beginning of the season when everyone thought, I bet we're going to see a lot of mid-season departures. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so much for that. <laughs> no one was right. able to get a send-off if that's what they were waiting for. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, let's get into the big one. On a scale of classic, great, decent, weak, or train wreck, we got to rate this guy. Uh, I, I, I think it's going to be hard to give it anything but what I expect we all will. But, Jamie, how would you rate it? Well, I think if we fence in, and the the old material again it's a it's a decent it's a c plus you know but that's not what it was what it was was what we got and what we got was a clip show slash uh, you know some fun behind the scenes interstitials a really special edition of weekend update uh and so i i think it's got to be great great you're cutting it off at great <laughs> I, I can't go cla- i can't go classic i can't all right all right Fair enough. Fair enough. I think, uh, you know, I think Paul Rudd 
kind of said it best in the good nights of like the, the beauty of this place is that it, it adapts to the moment. And, um, yesterday was a hell of an example of that. Um, so I think as far as, you know, as historic as this is, I think it has to be a classic. If I, uh, you know, if I look at just the material, no, you're right. It's not, but with the context of, of what we saw, um, historical, it, it has, it has to be classic. I think, um, just, just what a wild day it was and what they, ultimately pulled off and ended up being a really fun time. So classic for me, John, what is it? Yeah. It just depends on how you, you want to define classic. This is an episode we've never seen before. It's a format we've never seen before. Uh, it's a response to the state of the world, the challenges that they're facing specifically at 30 rock uh, a day before they're supposed to go to air. Um, so there's going to be lore around this episode. It is going to be something that people point to and they say, remember that time SNL got shut down by COVID and for some reason, Tom Hanks was on air anyways. Like there's, there's a, there's a story here and (laughs) it's, it's going to be one of the things that, you know, and ends up just, yeah, it just becomes part of the fabric of the lore of SNL and not every episode ascends to that. So there's something transcendent about this and that, uh, what we saw is not something we're going to be seeing routinely. And there's reasonably uh, applause to be given to them even trying. I understand mm-hmm. you got to fill the airtime. They already sold the ads. Like I, I understand they wanted to get something up, but they didn't have to try this hard. They could have just replayed the Christmas episode or they could have replayed an episode intact. They could have done mm-hmm. a clip show that that's already been produced and in the can that they play every year. There's a lot of ways they could have phoned this in and said, whatever, everyone go home. You know, we'll just, we'll, we'll pull something from the archives. Instead, they wanted to present sort of a optimistic front and the best face they could put forward and just put their best forward. And, uh, I, I applaud that. And, uh, because it's not something that we've ever seen before and that hopefully we don't see again, <laughs> I, I think you, you got to land on classic purely because it stands out. It exists as an episode that has no peer in, in what it, it is. And, uh, that's, that's noteworthy. So classic for me. And Jamie, you want to give into the peer pressure? <laughs> no, we need a contrarian. <laughs> Hold it. Stick All to right. your guns, Jamie. If that's, if that's how you feel, that's how you feel. <laughs> All right. Well, whether we want to label it classic or not, definitely historic, definitely different. Absolutely. Definitely a wild yeah. day. Yeah. Maybe historic would have been a better sub in for our scale mm-hmm. this week, but it is what it is. Right. <laughs> we threw Jamie <laughs> under the bus. So be it. uh john do you want to we're running long do you want to tackle all this patron feedback yeah so before we sign off um unless you guys have somewhere you need to be i should you know uh kind of tell the audience how we had to scramble a little bit because we didn't know what the show was going to be when we were figuring out what we wanted to do with the podcast this week so i put out the call late yesterday for audience feedback uh we always love to take audience questions when we have kind of a special show this was supposed to be our 150th episode blowout extravaganza um we recently passed two million downloads and so uh i was i was coming into this The, the reason why i'm here is Cause I wanted to come into this and this was kind of a big episode. So I wanted to, you know, it was one I wanted to do in person, uh, and a big episode of SNL to cover as well. Anyways, when all that just kind of deflated yesterday, we decided, well, let's, you know, let's make sure that we have something from the audience that we can lean on if, if we need to figure out how to have a discussion about a show that didn't take place. Um, 
anyways, all that to say, we gathered some interesting questions. So unless you guys need to bolt, uh, why don't we blitz these? You know, I, this may only show up on Patreon. I don't know, but we might as well lay it down. They they took the time to ask the questions. I'd like to answer them. Sure, right, I know where to be. Yeah, we good with that. Okay, all right. So uh, to kick things off, one of our patrons, uh, Baron, has a question about the SNL production. Actually, a misconception about the SNL production, and I think it's kind of worth bringing it up because not everyone that watches SNL has the opportunity to go to New York, see the show and get a sense of how the nuts and bolts of the show work. So let's uh, bat this around. I think maybe Catherine would be the one to answer this, but I'll, I'll pose the question. We'll see where we get. So Baron asks, SNL does two live broadcasts on Saturday nights, one for Eastern time and a second for Pacific time. How much change, if any, for the live stuff? I assume the pre-tape is set, but when like Sam Rockwall accidentally dropped an F-bomb, was that in the Pacific time show? Is there ever a sketch cut from either only to be made whole on Sulu <laughs> on Sulu on Hulu? Uh, okay. So that was, uh, you know, I, I parsing, um, millennial typing patterns is always challenging for me. Um, so Catherine, uh, there's a, there's a couple assumptions in there that obviously isn't quite how SNL works. So can you succinctly lay out how SNL actually gets to air? Like what's, what are the steps? What's sure. the process at 30 rock? Okay, so on Monday, no, we're not going to go back that far. <laughs> so <laughs> Just Saturday, on Saturday, yes. yeah, they do they do a dress rehearsal at 8 o'clock, right? So from 8 to 10, there's like a two-hour dress rehearsal. They play through everything as if it is the live show. There's commercial breaks. It's, there's yeah. it's live wardrobe special effects. So yes, they've got the cameras take. out and everything. It's, it's mm-hmm. exactly the same production that goes live, but instead of broadcasting on the airwaves, they just record everything in-house. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they have that to use should there be any sort of crazy technical technical issue or, or whatever. Um, but then at, at eleven thirty they've cut down some stuff and then it goes live and that airs on Eastern time, Central Time. And these days it's been live coast to coast for a while now, actually. It's what they right. they've been doing, I think. But you know, kind of the typical time of what uh, I think Barron's referring to is it airs central and eastern time live from thirty rock. There is you know, there's like a three to five second delay, you know, if they need to like censor something, they can. Um, and then what usually happens is then when it's 1130 mountain time, they that tape that they aired live gets replayed. Um, it's not they don't do the show again. Um, right. So. So I think I think that's a little bit of a misconception. There are two shows in the sense that there's a dress rehearsal and a live show, but there there is only one live show. Now, do right. they sometimes take stuff that goes wrong in the live show or they just didn't like how it played and take the dress rehearsal footage to cut it in? Yes, but that that's not done by the time the Pacific, uh, the, the West Coast feed goes. That's right. like something for Hulu or for YouTube and stuff like that. So, so yes and no, Baron, I guess is sort of the answer to yes. your question. <laughs> right. So he's correct in knowing that they do the show twice. Right. Where he's misunderstanding is that it's not because of the time zones. It used to be that they would air it at 1130 on the East Coast live. And then it was literally a, a rebroadcast three hours later for the West Coast at their 1130. So it used to be the timing was the same in each time zone, but the show wasn't live for the West Coast. That's how it used to be. Mm-hmm. Now they've bumped up the time slot for SNL on the West Coast so that they can simulcast it live from 30 Rock across the country. So everywhere in the country gets SNL live now. That's how it works. But prior to it going out, like you said, uh, there's a longer dress rehearsal version. And the reason for that is for them to 
you know, warm up and sort out all the material, but also so they can look back and say, oh, this stuff didn't get much of a laugh because there is an actual audience for the dress rehearsal as well. And so they can pare things down. They can trim sketches. They can cut sketches. They can realign things to work better with the, the show clock, the rundown, commercial breaks, all that kind of stuff. So there's a fine tuning between dress and live. And the nice thing about having two versions of the show in the can is that when they do want to prep it for Hulu or for rebroadcast or for the vintage show at 10 o'clock, they can take the best material from either the live or the dress version, and they can craft the best output. It's not true to what was broadcast originally, but it's usually the best version of the show, because if there was a missed camera cut that crunched a joke, they can fix the camera cut. Or if there's a flubbed line or some breaking that, that doesn't serve the sketch, they can put in the better delivery. So that's, so there, so he's tuned into exactly what that means for Hulu. If you got two versions of the show, by the time it gets to Hulu, it's the best they can muster from all their material. Right. So that I think is sufficient, unless you got anything you want to add to that one, Jamie. <laughs> no, not at all. No. no, you guys schooled me there. That's great. Okay. So moving on, uh, Peltzer Billy, uh, Gremlins reference. I am that old. I've wanted to know how much of the show is scripted and how much of it is crazy make ups and, you know, ad-libs, improvs. Because I heard when Christopher Walken hosts, he just says whatever he wants. He free associates and makes up the skits and bits right there. And people seem to enjoy it. So, Jamie, rather than Catherine and I talk for five minutes and leave you nothing, do you have any thoughts on uh, the nature of how they, they actually perform these sketches? Is, is this an improv show that we're watching on Saturday nights? Well, I would advise anybody who thinks that's the case to watch the credits. And the first uh, five in the first five names that appear are, are the writers. And if you'll notice anybody who thinks the cast is large, there is, <laughs> and there always has been a tremendous right. number of writers yeah. and they are writers who are professional writers and they are writing material that is going to be blocked for the stage and blocked for the camera audiences and yeah, there's not really a lot of room for improvisation because right. like you mentioned a moment ago, if a camera misses a joke, uh, we don't see it. And, you know, like just because Christopher Walken might be an exemplary improvisational talent doesn't mean the camera crew is. They are technically <laughs> trained and they need to, and the director for that mm. matter, they right. need to go with the flow and, and rather than go with the flow, they go with the, fully mapped out right this is what the sketch is and um you know do, do things happen occasionally of course they do but uh but to suggest that christopher walken just comes on and <laughs> shows up on saturday night you know not that you're not that your patron is saying that but uh you know yeah there's 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 very little wiggle room right um yeah there, there's always those moments that make people think you know, oh, oh, that would that seemed ad libbed, and I right. think sometimes it is, and sometimes it's just like really great writing. Um, and I did talk about when Sudeikis hosted how you know he had the sketch, the the science room sketch, where there was a line that Melissa sort of said her line wrong, right? And Sudeikis mm. ran with it a little bit. Her name, um, he, pr he pronounced her yeah, name right, the name wrong. Right. Um, and I don't know, it probably added you know five seconds to the sketch. You know, it wasn't it wasn't anything like he didn't come in. And to really derail the sketch for this improvisation, right? But he just added a little flourish that was fun in the moment. Um, and I do, I do sometimes feel like there maybe used to be, so they were a little looser about some things and just sort of like, if, if something hits, just like doing a quick one off joke about it off the top of your head. Uh, but 
definitely for the most part, it's all it's all scripted and very tight and rehearsed. <laughs> right. So that that is the point because it's going out live. They don't have the luxury of do overs in the moment. They they want to set the bar high and not do anything that could potentially let a sketch derail because there's going to be enough chaos and things that come up in the moment that they just have to deal with on the fly that they don't want to ever encourage that or introduce more of that chaos into the production than they already have. Right. If the if the director, if the people on stage just decide they're going in a different direction with a sketch and the director doesn't know it, you can't cut the camera, right? You just can't get it out on air properly if you don't know what's coming next. So yes. Um, it's not an improv show where improv plays into it is in workshopping the sketch ideas in just screwing around on the 17th floor where they're crafting characters. Most of the writers and performers come from an improv background. So as performers, that's a tool that they utilize to craft the show. But by the time the on air light goes on, everybody has to be on the same page. And when it's not. It's only because a seasoned pro that has decided that they are sharp enough to pull off an ad lib goes in that direction. And they have to do it in such a way that the other performers know how to pick the ball up and run with it and get back on track. And Mm -hmm. it's Catherine, you bring up Jason Sudeikis. He is one of those guys that because he started as a writer at the show and, you know, a fairly prolific, you know, prominent, well-regarded writer, and then went on to the cast. Um, He understands the sketches at a fundamental enough level that it's almost like if he wants to do a rewrite in the moment and he knows he can then send it back to the other player without derailing the sketch. Sometimes he goes for it and he takes bigger swings than I would. Well, I wouldn't be comfortable being on SNL period, but if I was in his <laughs> shoes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take those risks. Um, I saw the Fred Armisen uh, season 41 finale and Jason Sudeikis came on to support him in a couple sketches and in the regime sketch where uh, Fred Armisen is Jason Sudeikis's lover and she's this really bizarre character that just is embarrassing herself and he can't see it because he's lovelorn. There's a moment in there where she's passionately twitching because she's uh, basically making love to him on the couch in front of their guests and her leg is spasming and it's hilarious and everyone's loving it. But she kicks over some guacamole and gets it on her shoe. That didn't happen in the dress rehearsal version. In the dress rehearsal version, they followed the script. But when that happened in the live version, Sudeikis sees that. He takes a nacho. He gets the guacamole off her shoe and eats it live on air because everybody in the house is going to be like, what? And, you know, it's going to be like a big moment. And it's really going to take the sketch and elevate it in a way because people are seeing this, you know, ridiculous stunt. And everybody understands that that wasn't supposed to happen. She, she hit the guacamole. It's not something that's scripted. Those kind of moments can be a lot of fun. But if a lesser performer attempted that and screwed up the sketch, they would be speaking to Lauren about the mm-hmm. audacity of them thinking that they know better than what's on the page. So, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, but no, it's not, uh, not typically ad libbed on, on the real show, unless that's the game. In a Stefan sketch or something, sometimes they'll throw some dialogue at Bill Hader that he's not expecting because that creates, you know, better energy for the sketch. So there are sometimes games where someone has to take it and roll with it, but it's not an improv show. All right. So did I uh, go, uh, go long on that one, Catherine? Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's keep rolling here. Uh, Azazel uh, asks, I'd like to know how the response to Omicron compares to the response when there was anthrax scare at 30 rock. Uh, Tina Fey was in the cast then, but blah, 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 blah. You know, there's, there's lore around that. Um, so that's the basic question. 
we touched on it when we were talking about the episode, but if we were just to sum up, do we feel like the show responded to maybe COVID on the whole, but also this COVID scare that came up this week in a tonally correct, mature, responsible, classy way, kind of like they did with, with nine 11, Jamie, do you have any insights on how you feel they walked that line? Well, I think they had a show to put on and they put it on and, uh, you know, the show doesn't go on because it's ready to go or because COVID is going to cooperate. It goes on because it's 1130 on Saturday night <laughs> right. and they stuck to their guns. As far as that's concerned, they had uh, protocols in place to keep people at minimal risk. I mean, they only had two band members. They had, uh, it was so strange to see the outro with just the piano and sax. Um, you know, it, I, I feel like they did. I feel like they did a good job. There wasn't any, you know, sort of bleeding heart piece to it at all. It was what it was. It was, Mm -hmm. we've got a show to put on and we're going to put on a show and we're going to try our best to make you laugh and not think about COVID for a couple hours. Uh, And I I think they did a good job in that, in that regard to compare it with the anthrax scare is really tough because we were in a, we were on the edge of our seats from nine 11 Mm -hmm. and a month later, you know, packages were getting sent with anthrax to prominent locations. And that was, Hella frightening. This is hella frightening because it's changing our, you know, it's it's changing the way we feel day to day. But you know, it's not. It, it, I don't find them comparable in that way. So I think sure. Tina Fey showing up and and doing her best through through this COVID crisis was 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 great. And she was fine to leave during the anthrax crisis as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. So she she's kind of the litmus test. If Tina Fey sticks yeah. around, then our anxiety level can be a little bit lower. That's right. That's that's how we gauge it. That's our barometer. That's the, right. The Tina Fey scale of SNL insanity. Catherine, you got anything to add? Or should we keep rolling? Oh, no, yeah, I agree with Jamie. It's not 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 quite the same thing. Uh, yeah. In, in in a lot of ways. Okay. Moving on, we've got uh, Travis Kemp has a few questions. These aren't specifically related to the show that we're covering. This is just more about feelings on SNL in general. So who would you love to see host SNL in the future? Okay. We'll just stop right there. Cause he's got a bunch of stuff. So let's just leave it there. Jamie, why don't you? Oh it off? boy. Who would, I, I would love to see Adam driver come back. Uh, I think sure. as a hall of fame curator, I think that he is building himself a hall of fame career as a host. Uh, I, I love watching his episodes. They were irreverent and they're funny and they're stilted and uh, just great. Yep. Catherine, what do you got? Uh, I think Catherine Coleman would be a great host for SNL. Um, oh, I would have picked that too, <laughs> Catherine. I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, but no, I think um, I'd love, to, obvious, as a surprise to literally no one, I'd love to see Taylor Swift host again. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think she had a fun episode her first time out. I think she's she's grown and changed a lot. I think it'd be interesting. Um, and Robert Pattinson, actually, I think, would be wonderful. Um, he has this, there's this one video on YouTube. I don't even remember who he made it for, but it's like in black and white and it's him trying to get a hot dog in New York. And it like, and he's credited as the writer of it. And it's so funny. I think he's such a weird guy. Um, I think he could do a lot of really fun stuff. So Robert Pattinson would, would maybe be at the top of my list. Nice. Well, he's got Batman dropping at some point, yeah. so he could be on their radar for all we know. Um, so I always love it when alumni come back. Like I like when they signal, Hey, 
this person's part of the family. You know, they weren't just a cast member, but they're kind of in Lauren's staple forever. Uh, you know, when the Tina Fey's come back and, uh, I'd been holding out for Jason Sudeikis to host forever. Cause I don't know why, but uh, it just hadn't happened yet. And, um, you know, I, I was always telling you, Catherine, that I could go out on a high note if I just had a chance to podcast about one Jason Sudeikis hosted episode. And for whatever reason, you decided to cut me from the lineup that week. So, uh, yeah, it kind of put me in my place, but now that Jason Sudeikis has hosted and I missed out on that opportunity and I'm totally not bitter about it in any way. Um, I gotta say, I'm ready to see Bobby Moynihan. Um, ah. you know, he left the show. He had, uh, a sitcom in the works and it was a delightful show. And I think it was just too sweet for television. Um, and when that fizzled, uh, I was just worried that maybe we wouldn't see enough of Bobby, but, uh, he's stuck around and he's, you know, developed other shows, some under Tina Fey's umbrella or her and Robert Carlock, you know, that production team. Um, so, you know, he's still out there. He's still, he's still working, trying to find, you know, his big breakout vehicle. And, uh, I just, I'm always rooting for the guy. He was one of my favorites on the show. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I think he's a, a decent dude all around. So I would love to see him come back. And because he was such a virtuoso and he has a deep bench of, uh, characters, like even just weekend update people like riblet, uh, drunk uncle, like it just, you can go on and on, uh, with Bobby Moynihan. He, he could bring a lot back to the show and I just, I'd love to see him back, back on 30 rock. Um, and we saw a little bit from him tonight. So it's just a good reminder of, you know, that he was, he did the job for like nine years there. So, uh, I think that'd be my answer. Why don't we Fair keep enough. rolling? Uh, because Travis Kemp has a few things. He also says, if you could have anybody on the show who has ever been associated with SNL in some way, cast house band, makeup, et cetera, who would it be and why? So I think he's talking about having as a, an interviewee, oh, like a guest wow. on our show. So y- Jamie, you can just as easily weigh in on this. Cause I don't think you would ever turn down a, an SNL tangential no. interview if, if you had one lined up for your cast. So uh, why don't you kick things off, Jamie? Who, who would you love to have a, a little chat with? Oh boy. Just off the top of my head. Uh, like, I feel like I'd want to go to a writer. Um, and I think that I would go with Robert Smigel. Like, uh, mm. I know we've talked about him already, but I just think that some of the stuff that he's done both on the show and then outside the show are really uh, cultural touchstones. Uh, they're things that we remember. They're things that we sort of associate with. And it would be really fascinating to, to try and peer into his mind and, and see where he, where he fertilizes this material and, 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 generate so much of it i think that would be fascinating very good what about you Catherine? i mean lauren's the obvious answer right um sure <laughs> uh but it, you know aside aside from obviously wanting to speak to lauren michaels uh you know tina fey kate mckinnon would be uh top of my list either one of those i'd be very happy with yeah tina fey would be topping my list as well uh she's had such a, a storied career at the show after the show with the show outside of the show. Um, she's just worn so many hats, done so many things and just consistently been the smartest person in the room. A lot of the time, mm-hmm. you know, just, she's got a really sharp wit and uh, a great sense of what plays. And uh, she's a, a solid writer and she's just such a, a raunchy little bird too, in a lot of ways. And I just, I, she is like her, the, the stuff that she used phrase. to do on SNL when, when they were allowed to, get a little bit more uh down down in the dirt with their material um you know her uh 
some of the stuff that she turned out back in the day, it, you just, you couldn't put it on the show now. And, uh, I'll be the first to admit that I, I love that kind of stuff. I, I'm not, I'm not delicate that way. I, I enjoy raunchy debauched humor and, uh, she just always had that as well. So, um, I think she would be a fascinating person to to talk to. You met her briefly at one point and I've, I've been in the same room as her, but never had the courage to actually say anything to her. It's just, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, but I would love, uh, I would certainly love, uh, an opportunity to talk to her if that was ever, uh, a possibility. Now I've had a couple run-ins with Tina Fey. She was on a flight with me not too long ago as yeah. well, but I didn't talk to her that time. Oh, it, if, <laughs> if you could have acted out that episode of 30 rock where she's on a plane with Oprah and she's just smashed out of her gourd or she thinks she's on a plane with Oprah. Um, right. you know, that, that would have been, that would have been a moment for you. Um, so last question from Travis Kemp, he asks favorite SNL Christmas sketches. Okay. Oh. Jamie, what do you got? Oh boy. Favorite SNL. Uh, you know, the one that pops into my head right now is John Lovitz doing Hanukkah Harry. Oh yeah. Uh, I thought that was a, a really fun sketch. I don't know if that would be my absolute favorite, but that jumps out to me right now as a really fun holiday sketch. Um, maybe it's, maybe it doesn't stand up, uh, you know, based on the material, but, um, I had a good time with it when I was, you know, 13 or 14. I, I, I it made me laugh. It, it was a lot of fun. I would have liked to have seen it tonight. Fair enough. Catherine, uh, Christmas candle far and away. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was sad it wasn't on on last night's episode. I think it's it pays off every single time, and I I can never receive or give a candle ever again without um feeling bad about it. So <laughs> they've changed that for me. Very good. Um, geez, that's tricky. Forty seven years of material. How do you how do you even begin? Oh, geez. Yeah. So you've got Santa Baby, which I thought was a brilliant pre tape that didn't make this show but I feel holds up as really top-notch SNL pre-tape material, but I feel like it's got to be a live sketch for something like this. And so I think like, how deep do you want to dig? Because I really love that Eddie Murphy sketch, but I objectively know that that's not like the most amazing <laughs> Christmas theme sketch they've ever done. There was the Glen Gary, Glenn Ross stuff with the elves, you know, always be cobbling uh, with Alec Baldwin that was really sharp and great performances. Rachel Dratch was great in that. I think, uh, Amy Poehler, damn it. Even Keenan may have been, <laughs> but, uh, uh, that one stands out as like a seminal SNL festive themed sketch. Maybe I'll go with that. I think, I think that's, that's what I'm going with. Big brass balls. <laughs> okay. All right. Hope, hopefully that didn't go over anyone's head. Cause that just sounds weird. If, if there's no context, Monette Marady chimes in and has some thoughts on uh, this whole COVID situation and what it could mean in 2022. She says they should go back to the at-home format, if only for the month of January. As in February, they'll be off the air for the Olympics. Two months is enough time for things to settle down. And fortunately, they have more writers and cast who are adept at pre-taped content now. All right, how do we feel about that? Would we want to revisit the uh, SNL at-home format that we saw last year? Jamie? I think it was really special when they did it at the time. And it was something I made sure to tune into. I mean, that goes without saying though, I tune into it regardless. <laughs> uh, good grief. What do I think? I think that I wouldn't, I think if you don't have live material, it's tough to do a live show. I think uh, the show is called Saturday night live 
And I think the, you know, it was weird to have, to not have a live from New York at Saturday night this week, but it makes sense. They weren't live. Um, yeah, I think I would rather them just sort of put it aside for now and come back when they can do it properly, you know, um, make sure that everyone stays healthy and, and is, is healthy and, and go from there. Yep. Catherine, what do you think things are going to look like come January? Uh, well, I, I've maintained, my husband and I disagree about this. I maintain they're not going to shut down again. Even if they should, I don't think people are. <laughs> I just don't see it happening. I'm with you. Um, I agree with you. <laughs> uh, so I don't, you know, maybe we go back, maybe we go to no audience, maybe something like that. Um, but if they did the at-homes, I wouldn't be mad about it. I, I like the at-homes a lot. I think they can pull off some really great things with the at-homes, especially, you know, with... Um, you know, so a lot of we have whipped to new writers, so maybe they would have different takes on it uh, than we had when they did it last time. Um, would I rather see them live in studio? Absolutely, but I'd rather have at home than nothing. And I think the at homes actually had pretty good material. You know, um, everybody else in the world's been making virtual comedy this whole time. I think a few more SNLs doing it isn't isn't a problem. Sure, you uh, you've been doing that yourself, so I'm sure you can <laughs> relate to the production constraints of you know. <laughs> rigging up a lav mic and a, a, a blue screen and, you know, just trying to hack something out um, for my money. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it at all. I feel like at this point, two years into this thing, going back to the at home format says we haven't accomplished anything in the last couple of years. Like it feels like a regression just for culture, just for, I, I just, I don't want to see a reminder of what the world looked like April before last. That's not, I don't think anyone wants to like be in that, that zone. Um, and so I just feel like I couldn't help, but get that sense of like, Oh, geez, is, is this still where we're at as a society? Um, what I would really love to see happen and who knows how it'll play out. I would love to find out that the Omicron variant is as mild as some people are suggesting it could turn out to be. Uh, it would be great if it just kind of burned through and people didn't get excessively sick and everyone at the show that is currently dealing with it, they've had time to quarantine and recover and they're free and clear to pick back up where they left off. And they continue to do the show the way they've been doing it all season. It's not like COVID hasn't been here. It's just sooner or later, it's coming for you. And this week it came for SNL. Hopefully come January, that's not the case. And people can return to the show having whatever boosters and other, you know, protocol they need to, to take care of to make sure that everything's on the up and up. I hope they're able to do it and I hope they're able to regain their footing and not lose ground because coming back to the studio, doing the show up right and figuring out how to make it feel like it's not a COVID era show with a lot of constraints that they don't typically have, like being able to shelter the audience from that, I think is really important. And going back to the at home just shatters that illusion. And uh, I just, I, I want progress. I want to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So don't, don't drag me back kicking and screaming to 2020, please. <laughs> Fair enough. We got a little too intense on that one. <laughs> Sorry, Monette, if, if we went dark on that. <laughs> Obviously, in an ideal world, COVID like COVID like isn't uh isn't an issue and they can go back. Uh, right. I don't yes. think I don't think anybody's like, you know what? I hope it sticks around so we can do some at home shows. But <laughs> right. if we must, yeah, no, nobody's it, targeting yeah. <laughs> that. I understand it's a it's a last resort. I just I just hope that that's not where we're at in January. Right. You no, know, I hope brighter days are ahead for the show and for everybody. And uh that is maybe the best place we can leave the conversation. So before I throw it back to you, Catherine, Jamie, 
tell people a little bit about your podcast. Tell them where they can find it, what you're all about, and uh, you know, plug, do what you do. All right. Well, the SNL Hall of Fame podcast can be found at snlhof.com. You can grab it wherever you get your podcasts. But ostensibly what the podcast is, is myself and a guest every week. We go through a interview process where the guest brings uh, a candidate to be added to the ballot uh, of the SNL Hall of Fame. And at the end of the SNL season, we'll have about 30 names on that ballot, at which point we'll turn it to the listeners to become voters and they will select who they want to be part of the SNL hall of fame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fun cool. concept for an SNL podcast. Uh, the second you pitched it to me, I thought, you know what? That's, that's creative. That's a fun way to run at talk in SNL and the interviews that you've managed to rummage up are second to none. Oh, thank you. Uh, very much. I, I loved the Lauren Michaels interview, the guy that you got, he, he was a journalist of some sort. I can't yes, remember. Exactly he's a writer for the Globe and Mail. Uh, yeah. Andy, Andy uh, and he's the abs- head of the Humber school of comedy as well. Right. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're tied into there where, uh, right. Robin Duke, friend of the show, she, uh, uh, she taught there. I don't know if she still is. I don't know she how, what, co- yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, Joe Flaherty and so many others passed through those doors. And That's I think right. you've, you've met most of them actually. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I got to do a sketch with Joe Flaherty on the stage of the hallowed stage of second city, Toronto. And that was just a, a highlight for me. Like it was yeah. he and I alone on stage and um, he got to, uh, I got to deliver the blow to the sketch that I had written and he got to react to it and to see count Floyd reacting to <laughs> something that I had said was staggering. It was really yeah. phenomenal. It's okay uh, for the hardcore SNL comedy nerds among us. Well, not SNL, but just comedy nerds in general among us to be jealous at the thought of uh, you sharing a stage with Joe Flaherty because I like you less because I know that you had that <laughs> enjoyable experience. So uh, yeah, that's that's super cool. And uh, you have a podcast where you can now pull in all these wonderful people you know from the the comedy sphere that just really are up on uh, the history of, of these people. Um, yeah, the the person that you talked to about Dan Aykroyd also did a fantastic job. So uh, I highly recommend it. I I think that it's a delightful listen. Um, the Tina Fey episode in particular, uh, the person that you had on for that, um, wasn't just articulate and informed, but I could just I could just tell from listening that he's a very handsome individual. So uh, <laughs> I think I think everyone needs to check that out. Catherine is ready to cut off my feed, and I feel that that's warranted. So Catherine, back to you. All right. Well. We've certainly talked about a lot. Uh, yes, Jamie, thank you so much for being here. It was lovely to meet you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, yeah. Historic episode. Patron feedback. What more could you want? Episode 150, baby. It's in the can. <laughs> it's in the can. And that is a wrap. Thanks to John Murray and Jamie Dew. And thanks as well to our most generous patrons, Sam Bowers, Neil Weinstein, Justin Gardner, Grace Kogan, and Brian Clark. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on YouTube or wherever better podcasts can be found. Your subscription helps us grow and your support is greatly appreciated. God willing, we'll be back in January should SNL return. But until then, this has been episode number 150 the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. I'm Catherine Coleman. That's my story. I'm sticking to it.